Our U.S. military and military veterans are our country's greatest assets. But service comes with a price. Post-traumatic stress is our enemy, and our mission today is Operation Healing Heroes. Hi, I'm Jay Garstecki, and welcome to the Operation Healing Heroes podcast, where we document the lives of our U.S. military veterans one story at a time. In addition, we provide resources for veterans struggling with post-traumatic stress to ensure they get the help they deserve. Be sure to check out the Operation Healing Heroes TV show on Discovery Channel, Waypoint TV, Wired to Fish TV, and YouTube. Join me today as we feature Dr. Janelle Royster, a United States Air Force veteran who has dedicated her life to healing our heroes battling post-traumatic stress. Operation Healing Heroes podcast is made possible by Sure Microphones, the leader in audio electronics since 1925. Visit them at www.sure.com. Hey, Dr. Royster, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Absolutely. We certainly appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Uh, you and I have known each other for quite some time, and uh, I, I really appreciate you being our, our first podcast uh, guest. Oh, I'm so honored. I'm so excited you're doing this. Well, you and I first met and recorded an episode of the Operation Healing Heroes TV show back in July of 2021 in Florida. Uh, we've known each other even before that. Um, I absolutely love the work that you're doing to help uh, heal our heroes, our veterans. And um, I was hoping that today you might share with our listeners uh, some of the things that you're doing and, and how you've dedicated your life to uh, to healing our heroes and, and trying to make tomorrow better than today for uh, our veterans struggling with PTS. Sure, I'd love to. Where would you like me to start? Well, why don't you just tell the, the listeners briefly about our, our meeting and our TV show, uh, Operation Healing Heroes, down in Florida when we met back in 2021 and uh, what you thought of that. Oh. Yeah, you asked me to go on a show, and then I met with your producer, and I uh, was pretty honored, and uh, I got to go glamping, which was pretty cool, <laughs> and I got the opportunity to do all kinds of things. I think I was part of a rodeo. Uh, I did some zip lining with you, which is interesting because you were a little gun-shy about claustrophobia, so... I mean, uh, you were afraid of heights. Sorry, not claustrophobia. Yeah, afraid of heights. Got those two mixed up. <laughs> and you did fix that. I did. So that was pretty cool using some of these different interventions I learned along the way. Uh, let's see, shot some bows and arrows and went on an airboat, a smog boat. I think we did some pretty horseback riding. It was pretty exceptional. Like I would never have been able to do all of those things in two days without this opportunity. So I'm ever, forever, ever grateful. Ah, thank you. Thank you. Well, if anyone wants to watch uh, Dr. Royster's uh, episode of the TV show, you can uh, see it on YouTube or uh, you can visit our website, operationhealingheroes.org. And uh, there's, I forget what season it was you were. It was uh, probably two seasons ago, so season five or season six. But um, again, thank you for taking the time to uh, to, to film with us and, and share your story. Um, I've been forever moved after hearing your story and then obviously going through um, the TRP therapy that you had done with me. Um, which again, mm -hmm. cured my fear of heights. Uh, and we can talk more about that in a little bit, but um, I really 
you know, wanted to try and touch today upon, uh, obviously, post-traumatic stress and healing our heroes is a big part of what Operation Healing Heroes is and what we do. And um, you can't heal the trauma and, until there is trauma. And, and what I mean by that, everybody has some trauma in their life. Uh, I don't care if you're a combat veteran or if you're uh, a civilian in everyday life, um, everybody's got trauma. And so uh, the, the advancements that we've made technologically uh, as far as the abilities to, to heal this trauma is absolutely amazing. And so I know you've, again, dedicated your life to, to learning about this and uh, taking it to um, the individuals who, who need it the most. And uh, again, I'm, I'm forever grateful for that. So thanks so much. Well, I appreciate that, Jay. I'm just, I'm here to serve those who served. At the end of the day, uh, I know that there were significant steps I took once I realized that I was pretty um, messed up, <laughs> I guess is a good word to say it. I'd been diagnosed with complex, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which it doesn't mean it's a special kind of trauma. It just means I endured it for um, pretty much every day for an extended period of time. So people with extensive childhood trauma and people with uh, domestic violence trauma, uh, human trafficking survivors, those are the people that are typically diagnosed with the complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, they put you on a lot of medications initially trying to regulate that. I believe I was on 12 different medications because, as you know, medications have side effects. Mm -hmm. So when you put you on a medication, you try that medication, something else pops up that causes an issue. Then the doctor puts you on another medication. The challenge that I don't know if the, the general public knows is that post-traumatic stress disorder does not have a specific medication. Mm -hmm. So you're basically so what saying... They do, yeah, there's a there's a, a slew of different things that you can do to again. I always go back to saying, you know, help make tomorrow better than today for these these individuals. Correct. So what it does is a band aid. So if you're having nightmares, they put you on sleep medication. If you're having hypervigilance, they put you on anxiety medication. And I'm not saying medication is wrong, mm -hmm. because there are medication is vital. To, you know, I mean, if, if you have an infection, you definitely need medication to offset that. Uh, but with regard to PTSD, I think finding the root of the trauma is the best way to alleviate some of these symptoms. And these symptoms can be absolutely overwhelming. I used to have panic attacks and sit in a corner. But I also grew up in a household where I did not know what to expect when I came home from school. I didn't know if, you know, I didn't know if I was going to be hit or hugged. Mm -hmm. And when I was hit, to me, it was so common that it was like, oh, it's Monday. Yeah. So you and I obviously had the benefit of filming the TV show, and I, I understand your backstory. Um, would you mind sharing with the listeners um, kind of some of your childhood trauma and some of the struggles that you faced growing up so that they can understand that, again, um, this is probably more prevalent and more common than, than we'd like to admit. Yeah, unfortunately, I see a lot of that. And I also know that people who go into the service, typically, if they were to do some studies on this, and they have, but not significant enough, you know, I'm the deep diver, right? I'm getting a second doctorate. So for me, I like to find all of the information, or at least as much as I can, so that I have a well-informed 
opinion on it. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people look to me as the expert. Well, they don't understand that I'm only an expert in certain areas. <laughs> yep. No, that makes perfect sense. And uh, like I said, in order for, for you to understand a lot of this stuff, the trauma that you faced um, yourself, uh, you've seen, I'm sure, benefits uh, by from being able to, to utilize the, the deep dive that you've taken uh, to help cure some of the things that you've had to deal with. Absolutely. Most of mine were the, you know, the inability to sleep consistently. I would sleep every other evening and it was mostly because I was exhausted, not because my brain wanted to shut off. But uh, a lot of it, the, the traumatic childhood basically stems from not knowing what to expect every single day. And when you're in fight or flight, uh, since the age of four years old, it actually puts you in a hyper state where you are actually deferring to everyone else and you're an, you're an extreme empath because what you're told you should be feeling like it's minimized, right? You know, so for that first traumatic blow to the face, you are in shock and awe. And then after a while, it's like, oh, I shouldn't feel that way. So you're disputing your own emotions. Hmm. And it, it was just extremely volatile to be in those situations. You know, I have conversations with my sibling and, you know, she's like, yeah, it was just a Tuesday. But the challenge was, is I worked very hard to be the perfect kid, not to get in trouble, walk this line. And I thought that that would make my life easier when in fact it didn't, where she was the rebel, she was the outlander. She was the one who just didn't care about the consequences. And honestly, she's in her 50s and she still does it, which I find hilarious. But <laughs> do you, you know, think that, that she that just have, beats to her own drum? Sure. Do you think that may have actually helped her with, because um, I'm sure being a sibling, she had to endure some of the same trauma that you endured growing up as a child. She endured more. So because she was so combative, because she stood up to um, my mother so uh, so often, uh, she had to endure significant more trauma than I did. Hmm. But trauma was pretty much a normal day for you back in the day when you were growing up. Pretty much. Yeah, every day. I was in fight or flight, and I would pretty much, I was in freeze mode most of my life. I would just defer to, I would submit, I would give in, I wouldn't um, rock the boat per se. Whereas my sister, she's just, you know, swinging the whole thing around. <laughs> hmm. So you had mentioned earlier about trying to become perfect in life, um, and you spent a lot of your childhood trying to do everything perfectly. Um, Tell us a little bit about that. So anything that was of interest, uh, you know, like you should try this, you should go off of this, you should go off of that. And I, uh, you know, I kept myself very busy. I was in a lot of clubs. I was in a lot of sports. Um, We drag raced during the summer. I will say my Hail Mary was my stepfather because he kind of kept things, he kept us away, he kept us busy, he kept us out in the garage, which actually benefited me later in life because I became a division manager for an auto parts store. So uh, it was very beneficial that I spent a lot of time in the garage learning about cars and keeping me away from the uh, combative behavior. Hmm. And so... uh you mentioned it was your stepfather. Do you have a relationship with your biological father? Uh, he passed in 2020. 
Um, we did connect sparingly throughout um, his life. So not, not to any real extent. I think he was around for a year and a half. My oldest sister does, but I, I did not have a very great relationship with him. So how long of your childhood did you not have a father figure in your life? I know you had mentioned your stepfather who was kind of a savior for you, but how, when did he come along? He came along when I was about four, I believe. But the challenge with him is he, uh, he was gone a lot. He traveled a lot for General Motors. So there was a lot of wrath that was happening. And then on the weekends, everything was obviously perfect. So that that's a big challenge for a lot of people is the superficiality of people. It's a, it's very much a trigger that I have been working on for about 30 years now, because when someone appears to be all overly helpful and focused and joyful, it's like, okay, what are you hiding? Mm-hmm. Which is probably why I came into this profession <laughs> For the simple fact is I was trying to better understand, you know, after my mother and after my um, ex-husband, I was trying to understand people better. And I think uh, I got a job in a psych ward and that was my first exposure to mental health, you know, go big or go home. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to understand, you know, the people in my life who had died by suicide, why I was feeling the way I was feeling I was not getting a lot of um, relief in therapy, probably because I was going to the wrong people. I never went to a therapist that was a trauma-focused therapist. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were just wanting to treat the symptoms. So I was on medication for depression, and it wasn't the right medication. I was seeing stars and stuff. So for me, it was like the medication was not the right thing. It didn't alleviate anything for me. It made things worse. So I had to figure out nat- naturally how to alleviate those symptoms. Interesting. So um, obviously in today's day and age, unfortunately, broken homes are a pretty common thing, right? I mean, it's almost probably more common than than homes where the parents are still together or, or still married, unfortunately. But, um, you know, all those things as a child, I know my mom passed away when I was nine years old. My dad did remarry. I had, I have a great stepmom, but it wasn't always an easy um, transition, you know what I mean, for myself and my brother. And so we struggled with certain things, uh, probably like any family does. But uh, that being said, when you're a child, uh, you can't, um, I'll say comprehend, or you can't uh, process things like you can as an adult. And it took me getting into my adult life before I realized, um, you know, that, uh, my dad deserved uh, a lot of great things in life. And he found that with my stepmom, and, uh, she's uh, an amazing woman who treats myself and my family extremely well. And, uh, but again, at uh, nine or 10 or 11 years old, I, I didn't process it like an adult. And so, um, again, coming from a broken family, uh, but, but looking back on it now, it, it's, uh, it's something that, I know that our listeners, uh, many of them, I'm sure, come from broken families, and many of them have had struggles, uh, and and I'm sure some of it's caused a lot of anxiety and and post-traumatic stress. But um, that being said, um, you know, I I just want to say, again, thanks for the advancements that you've made, because later on in the show, I want to talk about some of the things that you're doing to to help alleviate some of the symptoms and the pain that uh, anxiety um, can cause. Mm Mm-hmm. So that being yeah, I'm, said, I'm very blessed. 
No, I, I, I have been very blessed at the opportunities I've had, the different certifications I've received. You know, I got very lucky to work with a psychologist. So, yeah, when I was in the military, I left because uh, my my stepdad did divorce my mother. And when he did, she decided to swallow some sleeping pills. And I had to actually put my fingers in her back of her throat and alleviate those pills from her mouth. And uh, that was traumatic for me. Um, I, I mean, I'm even getting a little bit of the visceral reaction just because that is not a thing that you want anybody to do to you or you want to do for them in your life. It is just the weirdest feeling to to have to physically do that to someone, not to mention the traumatic reaction afterwards. Especially from uh, your mother, I mean. Correct. Well, it also, I mean, you're internalizing this behavior too. So when someone does, what I have realized from working with those who are on the verge of suicide is three seconds after their attempt, whether it's, you know, when it's failed, they realize three seconds after the execution of the attempt, they regret their decision. Hmm. And this is every time. There are studies and studies and studies that have been done on this. I work, I work and talk to a lot of people who do the two, you know, the, what is it, 988 helpline. Mm-hmm. So I work with a lot of those individuals, and that is the most common thing they tell me is the person that attempts two to three seconds after they attempt and it fails, they have that just immediate regret, which is now another trauma. So let's back up just a little bit. Give me an idea of, um, you know, obviously I know your childhood was uh, was difficult. You shared kind of that with you. What was what led you into the military? Um, you know, and what was military life like for you? So uh, my mother and my stepfather divorced, and uh, I there was no way I was going to survive that household without him. So I decided to go in the military. I had a friend of mine who... I drag raced with actually. And he's like, I'm going in the air force. And I'm like, what's the air force? So he's like, I'll take you. So he picked me up and we went into the, the office and the guy says, you have to test pretty high. And I just looked at him and I'm like, what do I have to test? And he's like, we have to take this thing called an ASVAB. And I'm like, well, give it to me. And he's like, Oh no, no, it has to be scheduled. I'm like, Oh, I'm like, I'm ready to go that day. You know, I didn't know there was a process to this. So I went and took my test and I scored high enough, obviously, to be in the Air Force. And they give you a myriad of jobs that you can choose. And I chose, I was like, well, you know, medical field sounds interesting. So I decided to be a surgical technician. And that's basically handing the instruments to the surgeons uh, while in surgery. And I remember going to basic training. Uh, I had a good time because I was also, I had a friend of mine who went to Marine basic training. So the time before I signed up in between, I signed up and went to MEPS, which is the center where they make you walk like a duck and do all the, you know, um, the overview to ensure that you're capable of enduring, you know, military life. Mm -hmm. So they do a physical exam check your ears, check your nose, check this, check that. 
they have you walk like a duck for balance. That it's a big joke. So when you go to the maps, that's you know so those are some of the things you do. So what I did is I met up with him, and he was fresh from I think it was the break between tech school and his permanent duty station, and he kind of gave me a rundown on what Marines endure during basic training. Now, keep in mind, I already signed my life away, mm-hmm. so I couldn't get out of it, right? I didn't know I technically you can, but I didn't know that at the time. And I'm like, well, I made a commitment. I'm going to do this. So when I went to basic training, I'm like, is that it? <laughs> <laughs> I was always waiting for the ball to drop because in the Air Force, it's more academia. You study more, you have an airman training order, and you study this thing while you're marching, while you're standing waiting for the mess hall, while you're waiting for lunch, while you're waiting for, you know, different classes, because there were there were a lot of sit-down classes. And I think we only double-timed once, and we only used our gun once. We did medical readiness training, which I really enjoyed. And it was like, uh, you carry, like, other airmen to the back of a like a covered wagon type truck and you throw them in the back of it. Like that was exciting. We did the whole gas mask thing, you know, mm-hmm. but it was only like one day. And at the very end you had to do a confidence course. And there was a part where you had to swing at the very end of the confidence course, you had to swing on a rope. And the goal was, is to not get your boots dirty, but everybody would delay in letting go of this rope. And they would always get their boots dirty. And they're so they're all in the bathroom drying their boots and stuff. And I'm like, I'm not getting my boots dirty. Like, I didn't want to get them wet because it took me forever with the water and the cotton ball to get them to shine. Like, I did not want that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was hell bit, right? So I did it. And I, I think out of 85 people, there were only two of us that had dry boots. Wow. I was like, that's even more impressive than the marksman over there, you know, because I knew I wasn't going to have a gun because I was in the medical field, mm-hmm. you know, so I wasn't, I did end up getting 35 out of 40, but that's also because, you know, I, I trained with my oldest sister who hunts, you know, okay. so she's really good, but that's another story for another day. So would you say, uh, your time in the military, uh, positive part of your life? Oh, absolutely. I, uh, yeah, I, there's a lot that happened when I was in the service. Um, when I went to technical school, I remember going in and they pretty much, what they did is they did a, what's called a pseudo appendectomy, right? Where they make this little incision and then the blood seeps out, obviously. And then you determine who's going to stay in that class or not, because some people fainted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that's why they do it on day one so that they can wash these people out and get them to do a different specialty. So they're not wasting their time, which is actually a good idea. And then uh, my tech school was pretty cool. I met a lot of really good people. Some people I'm still friends with on Facebook, which is pretty cool. I have a friend of mine that I went to basic training with who's actually, she lives in Pensacola, which is pretty exciting. So I do get to interact with her a lot. But uh, my best friend, the lady I connected with most, her name was Ashley. And she was like 5'9". She weighed maybe 115 pounds. I mean, she was really, really lanky. And she had short, fire red hair. And she had like pale skin, searing blue eyes. So we're in Texas. And I was so worried about her getting burnt (laughs) (laughs) out on these things. We're like, you know, because we were, well, we were basic together 
and then you know when we went out on the weekend because we we did get uh as you transition they allow you to wear civilian clothes on the weekends and you can go off base and you know so we did a lot of that but i always made sure i had suntan lotion for her ears like i was so worried about because she had seriously ivory skin i did not ever see anybody with that white skin i thought i was white coming from michigan <laughs> oh no this girl is the fairest one of all so Anyways, you know, we met people and she was a pretty exceptional singer and I like to sing too. So I kind of talked her into singing every other weekend so that I could win sometimes because if she just sang, nobody ever won. <laughs> like she was karaoke the white talking. Whitney Houston. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Karaoke. So she was the white Whitney Houston, if that tells you anything. Nice. So she got married. I stood up in her wedding at tech school and then I went on to my uh, specialty training and then I went on to, um, I got stuck in Dayton, Ohio. And I think I would have done a career in the military if I would have went to Florida. But because I was in Dayton, Ohio and I'm from Michigan, I was, I was heartbroken. There's no other word for it. Hmm. So, uh, some time had passed, and uh, I heard from Ashley's mom, and she was living in either Colorado or Wyoming. It's a little fuzzy now because it was 25 years ago, mm-hmm. but um, her mother called and said that she's really struggling, that she needed me to come out, and I'm like, oh, okay, you know, so she bought me a plane ticket. I went to the Dayton airport and was on my way. I don't remember if it was Dayton or Cincinnati. Like I said, some of these, you know, when trauma happens, sometimes the other stuff is pretty fuzzy. Mm -hmm. So I went out to, you know, the West Coast area, I guess, whether it was Colorado or Wyoming. I think what happened was is I flew into Wyoming but drove into Colorado. I think it was somewhere on the border, and that's why it's a little fuzzy. But I do know she had a white three-story townhouse and Ashley had gotten divorced and she had a miscarriage all in the same time frame. So she came home to her mother's. She got out of the military. She was getting out of the military because she was pregnant. Now keep in mind, she was also diagnosed with bipolar. And when she found out she was pregnant, Instead of talking to the doctor, she decided to get off her bipolar medication, which caused significant issues in her marriage. And a lot of people get married right in tech school. Uh, You know, they spend six six weeks with the same sex, and then they transition to, you know, different co-ed dorm rooms and this, that, and all of a sudden everybody's married. So that was a big thing. But, you know, he seemed like a good guy, but I can understand you know, having somebody with that type of disordered mental health issue, how that, if it's not regulated, it can be almost impossible to deal with on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So I do understand where he's coming from, but neither here nor there. Uh, her mother wanted me to come out because she needed a friend and she she started to feel better and you could see, like, <laughs> this is kind of funny to say, but the the you know, her, her skin became flush again, even though it was like really, really ivory. Uh, but she started to perk up. She started to seem like she was doing better. 
And so her mother, her father, which they weren't married, but her mother and her father and I were going out to dinner because it was my last night. I had to fly out the next day. And she said, no, I'm doing well. I really don't want to go. You guys go. It'll be great. I really want you to get, I don't even remember what she told me to get, this amazing chicken, which is kind of funny because it's hard to screw up chicken, but I guess you can. So she wanted me to go to this restaurant. So we waited for the boxes. We waited for the check. Everything was pretty slow. And when we got back to the townhouse, the kitchen was on the second floor and it had one of those garages that were two stories. Uh, they, it was all open, open plan. So the stairs from the kitchen would go down to the garage. And the reason I mentioned this is because I went into the kitchen to put the, the food away, you know, the leftovers. Mm-hmm. And I smelled the smell. Well, me being a race driver, I know exactly what carbon monoxide smells like. Mm-hmm. So, I, she was downstairs. I yelled at her, told her to call 911. I remember um, the microwave started blinking on and off and the lights started flickering, hmm. which there was no electrical reason for that. So that I feel was very much spiritual. Anyway, so I had uh, opened the garage door and I waited like maybe five seconds, just enough to be able to breathe. And I opened the garage, like I pushed the button so the garage door would go up and the exhaust would go out. Mm-hmm. And then I waited about five seconds and I opened the door and I held my breath and I come running down the stairs and I, I opened the garage, you know, the driver's side door and she had fallen out and she was completely blue. And I did try and give her CPR because I didn't know what else to do. And the firemen came and the whole block was just full of people. And, you know, um, I knew I wasn't supposed to move her, but I had to get out of there so I could breathe. So I stood outside for, you know, I realized she was gone. Um, and I stood outside for a while and the firemen, they, you know, obviously put me in the back of the ambulance and I'm sitting there and I'm breathing with an oxygen mask and they're yelling at me because I should not have tried to give her CPR. Mm-hmm. Uh, Long story short, yeah. Mm-hmm. So she she had uh, died by suicide. They took her to the hospital with the lights on, but no sirens, and it was just very traumatic for everybody involved. And it was um, Ashley's mom only had one child, so you know, for her, she she definitely is a mother of veteran suicide, and that is very traumatic in and of itself. I do check on her from time to time. But it's always the same thing. I miss my Ashley, mm-hmm. you know? Sure. Wow. So That's this heartbreaking. Is, I mean, you never want to hear of anybody having to try and endure one suicide, but you've now experienced two, and, and I'm going to call it your young life. I mean, you're probably not even 25, 30 years old at this point, and your mom's attempted suicide, and now your best friend has committed suicide. Right. I was 20. Wow. So at this point, are you still in the military or are you, are you out of the military? So, yes, I'm still in the military. Uh, I um, called Staff Sergeant Jones, and I'm absolutely going to call her out for this. Uh, but I had called her, and 
I told her what had happened. My best friend died by suicide. I asked for an extension. She told me I didn't have any leave and they needed me back. I told her, I said, isn't there anybody that can cover for me just one more day? I just want to be able to, I said, the mother is willing to move the funeral forward, you know, so that I can attend at least the ceremony. And they told me no, and they would report me AWOL if I didn't come back. Hmm. So you had to So that was probably back. part of the, mm-hmm. I had to report back. I did not get to go to her funeral. I did not get to say goodbye. I didn't get to do a lot of those things. And I felt a lot of good guilt for a lot of years for the simple fact is I, anytime after that, and it was very much triggering because anytime after that I would go out to eat and I realized going to get a box to go box would take too long or the check would take too long. Mm -hmm. I, I would, I would hand the card before they gave me the bill. Like I realized I was doing this a lot more often. Yeah, I I understand that. <clears throat> well, sorry to hear that. Um, and again, uh, man, it's, uh, I, I guess it makes it more clear now to understand why, uh, you know, you're doing what you're doing now to try and help uh, veteran suicide. And, and uh, yeah, it's just, it's hard to put into words. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I and I don't think people understand how much damage they do at the loss because when you're so consumed with your failures, you're so consumed with not being good enough, you're so hyper-focused on what you are not doing as opposed to, hey, you got up this morning. Celebrate that. Mm-hmm. Well done. You got dressed. And I don't think we give ourselves enough and I can talk about this a little later, but we do not give ourselves enough grace and enough acknowledgement of what we do accomplish on the day to day. Yeah. On the day to day. Absolutely. Um, we live in this rat race that uh, we're constantly going, 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 and um, until it takes its toll on us, whether that's, uh, you know, from getting sick, cold, flu, whatever it might be to, you know what I mean? To literally a a breakdown, right? Absolutely. And I think that her suicide affected my military career too, because I just didn't want to be there. So did you get out after that? I shortly after. Yes. Yep. I, um, I did some things to sabotage myself. I don't really need to go into detail but there were a few things and I, I received an honorable discharge and all that but yeah I, I didn't I knew right then this is not a place I wanted to make a career out of just for the simple fact that life is going to happen and traumatic things are going to happen and they didn't have my back hmm. and I understand now it was just this one person and I'm sure I could have went to the first sergeant and that would have made all the difference in the world but when you're you know, 20 years old, in trauma, constant fight or flight for almost all of your life. You just assume that is what it is and this is what you'll have to put up with or you make choices to do something different. Hmm. So all this trauma that you've endured by the time you're 20 years old, um, did you have your own suicidal ideations? 
Not at that time. I think I was just very focused on trying to figure out what I was going to do in my life. Uh, I didn't have the world is against me yet. Mm-hmm. That came a little later. Um, when, you know, I, I got married and I started raising children and, and I was trying to accommodate everyone. Like I said, the empath in feeling everybody else's feelings is very evident because you don't know, like when someone tells you, you shouldn't feel that way. That's not the way you should feel. That's not what I meant. And they minimize the trauma that they've put you under. Then you question, like, you you don't have the ability to dispute things. So when your gut turns and you're looking at somebody like, did you just say that to me? And you don't, it's not regulated, mm-hmm. right? So what happened to me is I was just hyper-focused and helping everyone else live their life and do what they asked me to do. It was no different than my childhood. So I had no time of freedom where I could transition and go, oh, I shouldn't be feeling that way. That's not what this, it's not about me. You know, start to realize what is about me and setting those boundaries. All of that came later. Interesting. So, so, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, um, would you mind explaining um, what life was like as you transitioned out of the military and then what led you down the path of, of healing our veterans? Absolutely. Great. Well, let us take a short break. Um, as we had mentioned earlier in the podcast, we want to provide uh, our listeners, uh, especially our, our veterans and their family members, um, a nonprofit of the week. And uh, it's important that we continue to uh, tell veterans and their families that there are nonprofits out there like Operation Healing Heroes that uh, that support our veterans. Um, we assist in the financial part of paying for treatment of post-traumatic stress. And so uh, each episode of this podcast, we want to make sure that we feature a nonprofit of the week that in some way, shape, or form uh, benefits our U.S. military veterans. And so this week, uh, we're going to talk about Take a Vet Fishing, uh, which is another nonprofit that I'm uh, involved with. Uh, but uh, yeah, we're going to take a short break. And then when we come back, um, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about life after the military and then um, the, the the things that you've done to help uh, heal our veterans going forward. This week's Veterans Resource Nonprofit of the Week is Take a Vet Fishing. We provide one-day group fishing outings to veterans struggling with post-traumatic stress. The great outdoors has a natural healing power. Come experience the camaraderie and healing that one day on the water can provide. If you're a veteran living in or willing to travel to Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, or Florida, you can sign up free of charge to our one day of giving back events. Visit www.takeavetfishing.org for more information. Well, welcome back, uh, Dr. Royster. Again, thank you for sharing your story with us. Um, before this, we kind of talked about your your time in service and uh, a lot of the, the trials and tribulations and struggles that you faced uh, as a child. Um, let's talk now more about uh, you getting out of the military and uh, what transitioning back into civilian life was like. Um and then what led you down the path to uh, become an ambassador to healing our, our veterans and, and their struggles with PTS? Hi, thanks for having me back. I love being a part of this. Uh, 
So the big thing was is the transition was really hard trying to find a job in my career field. Understanding the differences between what you do in the military is not what you can do in the civilian world. Uh, there were so many liabilities and limitations and things that I was not uh, privy to during this transition. So I think I had two or three jobs after that. And then uh, I started. Yeah, I went back to what I know, which is automotive. And I started to work at um, different automotive shops. I worked my way up and that's where I met my uh, ex-husband. And throughout that marriage, he was a Marine as well. And I, I make a joke all the time saying I served 17 years because I didn't serve 17 years in the military, but I served 17 years with him. And he had a lot of unresolved childhood trauma. He had a lot of trauma from the Marine Corps. Um, he had a lot of anger, a lot of frustration. There were a lot of altercations to the extent of there was one time where I was doing payroll and uh, and he decided to call me on the phone and, and I was trying to file for divorce because I had had enough. And I started working in behavioral health and kind of realized what was healthy and what wasn't. And uh, he decided to, he wanted to beg and plead with me to stay married to him. And he decided to put a bullet in his chest. So I had even more trauma. And uh, just, you know, finding someone to cover me was challenging. And I don't think people speak about that enough. You know, I mean, I couldn't stay for a funeral because there was nobody to replace me. And I could, it just speaks to the American workforce and how insensitive we are. Mm -hmm. You know, finding someone to replace me so the store wouldn't be liable while my husband at the time was laying on the, you know, floor with a bullet in his lung, wow. you know, and uh, I finally arrived. He got airlifted off and uh, he stayed in, you know, the psych ward and for about seven days and then they released him. And uh, long story short, yeah, that was the end. <laughs> and uh, I stayed. I started to realize how I was reacting to people and especially being in behavioral health, your coworkers will hold you accountable. It's like, look, this is not how you react to this. Like, this is not okay. You know, I worked in a psych ward where the patients would react. They'd be off their medications. They'd be very combative and you had to basically hold them down and put them in restraints sometimes and give them some medication. And, uh, you know, there were a few times where I had my shirt ripped off. I was punched in the face, you know, and I never had a big reaction to the assault. And I think my coworkers noticed because they were like, how are you not upset? And I'm like, yeah, it's a Monday, you know. So for me, it wasn't that traumatic. Mm -hmm. It was just like, this is something I've endured my whole life. So. That's when things started to change and I started to realize that, oh, I need help. So is this... Because I'm not even reacting to somebody harming me. Yeah. W would you say that, you know, obviously this, this past that you had with your mom's a suicide attempt, your best friend committing suicide, your husband trying to take his own life, um, are these the things that led you to ultimately uh, become the doctor that you are today and, and 
you know, <laughs> try and learn more and more about anxiety and depression and suicide and, and trying to find a, um, I don't want to call it a cure, but uh, the closest thing that we can find to a cure for post-traumatic stress and anxiety. Oh, absolutely. Learning about the brain. I, I'm doing some pretty groundbreaking stuff right now, which I have been so blessed to meet the people that are on the same mission and really want to move that needle. And I'll talk about them shortly. But at the end of the day, I needed help for me. So what I did is I'm like, well, I can't find a therapist. So, you know, I'll just go be one. And I had already received my first doctorate by this time. So I was working on my second master's and it really came easy to me. I was really surprised because school is not my favorite thing, especially testing, because I had a catastrophic mindset where like I fail this test, my life is over. And it was that dramatic. Hmm. And I didn't realize that I could dispute that and, and realize that things are choices and, you know, you're not success or failure aren't synonymous. And I had to like learn all of this stuff and experience this stuff for myself. But I worked really hard. I became a clinical mental health counselor. And I worked, like I said, I worked in a psychiatric facility. I worked in a uh, psychologist's office where I learned how to do uh, clinical testing and evaluations. I also worked with human traffic survivors. And I will tell you, this was the most profound thing I've ever learned in all of my training. I had a human traffic victim who was in seeing me for a session and the next lady came in and she was just in tears and extremely distraught and overwhelmed. And she's like, I'm getting my nails done on Thursday instead of Wednesday. And she was really upset. I mean, really upset. Almost if your dog of 15 years had passed on, you know, I mean, she was that heartbroken over, not getting her nails done on Wednesday as opposed to Thursday. And I thought it was absolutely ridiculous. And I brought it into um, my supervision because I was an intern at the time. And I, the psychologist got in my face and I'm like, this is ridiculous. I can't believe she's traumatized. Look at the people I'm seeing. And then she comes in here and acts like that over something this stupid. Right. Mm -hmm. Lesson learned. That psychologist got in my face and she said, her trauma and their trauma are not comparable. Whatever the event is, how she feels about it is what's most important. And you have no right to tell her her trauma is not important to her. And I was like, oh. Wow. That's, yeah, it's pretty powerful. You're right. You're absolutely right. I but mean, we we do that all the time. Combat vets, you know, I did the back half of somebody else's deployment and it wasn't that bad. But somebody who spent, you know, six months in Afghanistan who is in the dogfight every single day, that's horrific for them. Mm -hmm. Or it was the best time of their life. It depends on who you talk to. Yeah. Right? No, absolutely. So you have a civilian or a dependent like you. You're a dependent. Right. So a dependent like you can say, well, my trauma is nowhere near the level of your trauma. How do, how do you know? It's your brain. So when people say that to me, I get a little upset because I'm like, your trauma is how it affects you. It's very individualized. It has nothing to do with anybody else. 
So on a scale of zero to 10, if your trauma is a 10, just because you didn't go to war doesn't make it a six. It means it's still affecting you every single day of your life. And that's what we got to work through. Makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. So, so I, I have that conversation all the time. And that's something I wanted to bring up in this podcast is that, you know, just because you witnessed a car accident, but it affects your brain every single day. Does it make you less important than somebody that served in wartime? It's very true. It's very true. And like I said, I, I mean, there's not a person that's walking the face of this earth that I'm aware of that doesn't have some form of trauma in their life. Right. So now I do know people who have worked very hard and you will, you will do a podcast with one of them, but uh, he's worked very hard to resolve his events as, as often as they come. Let's talk about so that. A he's little learned bit. those tools. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've, you've pretty much made it your life mission at this point. I think it's fair to say to, to really um, learn more, understand better um, the, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, whatever you want to call it, um, and, and understanding how to heal the brain. And so uh, how did you get involved with healing post-traumatic stress specifically? So I think, I think it started with uh, the human traffic survivors because I realized how the brain, and I worked with a psychiatrist and a psychologist, and, you know, ending human trafficking was a big big thing in Chicago, you know, it was the South side of Chicago. And I worked in a private practice office there and it was just, I mean, she was making huge steps toward helping them resolve that. And, you know, working through, I think she used, um, it was a spinoff of EMDR, which everybody knows what EMDR is, but EMDR is one of the, they have different, you know, therapeutic, modalities for everything. And I learned cognitive behavioral therapy and rational emotive behavioral therapy, which is all about choices and disputing that finite language. Like I, I never will be successful. And it's like, is that really true? You know? So that's part of our EBT, but working in the, all these different areas. And then I did residential, which obviously you have kids that are self-harming and you know, kids that are attempting suicide and kids with major depression and just these serious, you know, challenges at home to the point where they felt it was better for them to be locked up in this facility than it is to be home with their parents. That's pretty profound, right? Yeah. And having these complicated relationships. So learning about their lives and and how trauma affected them. I mean, everything I've done has been trauma related inadvertently you know so you may be treating depression but where does that depression come from you may be treating anxiety but where does the anxiety come from so what i say and this is probably bold but i say what i want to pull the ingrown hair mm-hmm. you know because once you do like it's gone and you can get rid of it and my focus is making sure that people sleep better uh, they, they're not living in that cycle of, because it is hard on the body. You know, Vanderkolk, he wrote a book, The Body Keeps the Score, and it's hugely famous. Mm-hmm. And what it is, is he talks about how, you know, the, the amygdala, which is your fight, flight, freeze, or fold mechanism. So when information comes in, we receive about 2,000 megabytes of data per day. 
And when we sleep, when we hit REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep at night, the neural pathways send that information to the parts of the brain where it belongs. But if it hits the amygdala, and the amygdala is your fight, flight, freeze, or fold, which means that that negative event or that event, it's not negative or positive, car accidents are just car accidents. It's how you feel about it individually. So if you and I were staying on a corner and you were just like in shock that this car accident just occurred in front of your face, that's freeze, right? But I, being a you know first responder type individual, I'm going to run out, make sure everybody's okay, call 911, do CPR if I need to, and all that good stuff. I don't even think about it until way after the event, hmm. right? So it's just how we as individuals process things a little bit differently. Yes. So acute stress disorder is zero through 30 days. So when in the, that car accident happens and you are struggling with these, you know, these events, um, how your brain is reacting to the fight, flight, freeze, or fold in the first 30 days, but you get those tools or you disconnect it within that time frame, it will not turn into post-traumatic stress disorder. Post-traumatic stress disorder happens 31 days on. Hmm. Right. So when you hit REM in your body, what happens is, is if if information, that event that's attached to one or several negative emotions gets stuck in that amygdala, what happens is, is if you have so much information that is stuck in that amygdala, because that amygdala is not going to let you process those events um, before they're disconnected. So if they're still connected, what happens is it pushes down your 10th cranial nerves into your vagus nerve and that's why when you think uh there's an event uh let's say there's another car accident and you start your chest gets tight your throat closes up your stomach starts to turn it's because that amygdala is sending signals to your vagus nerve and your vagus nerve runs through all of your organs and that's where the body keeps the score Hmm. so what, what they're finding out what they're finding out now is that human traffic survivors actually are getting stomach cancer based on the extensive stress that they endure when they're in that traumatic response 24-7. So that's pretty interesting because I know that, I mean, I I don't know if you'd agree with me, and I'm speaking completely out of term because I'm definitely not a doctor, but um, it seems like there's been a lot of advancements over the last several years. I don't know if it's three, five, seven, ten years, but it seems like there's a lot more understanding or at least like I said, advancements as it relates to um, disconnecting the emotion from the trauma, right? And so I know you've mm-hmm. worked a lot on this and um, um, you, you've you put me through this. Uh, we discussed earlier how you've cured my fear of heights and um, you did mm-hmm. use a, a, a modality called TRP therapy at the time and um, discuss your initial involvement with that. So I... Uh... I had a friend of mine that I graduated with in my master's and he basically told me I was really screwed up and how I was reacting to things uh, was not normal and that I needed some help. So that dude dragged me all over the country. Like he had me doing all kinds of things where I'd touch my nose and tap my head and (laughs) just all kinds of different certifications. I'm certified in like 27 modalities now. But uh, it's just because there's new stuff coming out all the time, and it's because it it morphs into something different. It's like you take your collective, 
you know, experience and you start applying this and you use clients as guinea pigs with their permission, of course, it's like, Hey, I want to try something. You okay with that? And it's like anything to feel better, mm-hmm. you know? So if they get relief, they're all in. Uh, but he took me to hypnosis and he took me to just meditation and so many different certifications. There was different kinds of hypnosis because he's a diplomat and you'll have him on your show later too. So he can talk with regard to that. But uh, he went through training in November of 2019 and he said, I might find some relief. And I went, am I going to sleep? And he's like, you might. And I'm like, cool. Okay. And then he told me it was sponsored by a nonprofit. And I'm like, well, that's awesome. So uh, what they were doing is this nonprofit was raising money to sponsor clinicians because they found value in it because that's how nonprofits get started. I mean, there's like 43,000 out there right now. And the majority of them are because they went to a nonprofit that had some similar type of events and they found value in it. Mm -hmm. So uh long story short i you know got sponsored to take this training i found value in it but it was and it's very clinically based and it's very good i mean you have art emdr and rtm all three under the pillars of neuro-linguistic programming which is very cool very good you know i'm certified in all of them now but it's because i find tools inside those that i find very um very beneficial because at the end of the day as a clinician my job is to find something that works to alleviate what you have going on whatever that is yep and so so in the last few years i've kind of opened my eyes to all different opportunities because some things don't work for people it's like well i can't do that or i can't do this and so what i did is um it's evolved into you know, the challenge is some of these protocols are too long. Some of these protocols, you have to endure the story. And for me, having, you know, I think my, you know, what is it? The assessment for childhood experiences, uh, I was eight out of 10. And most of the people that endure what I've endured in childhood and early adulthood, like most of them are drug addicts, honestly. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how I evaded that in any way, shape, or form, not judging anyone. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty surprised. I'm not an alcoholic, um, probably because I don't like the taste too much. But at the end of the day, I started using this protocol on everybody I knew, my clients. I had I had a pretty extensive reach because I'm pretty chatty, and I usually network with a lot of people fairly quickly. So it was like, I pretty much asked everybody to be a guinea pig. And I think in the first 30 days after I was trained, I, I worked with about 100 people, hmm. which apparently is a lot. I didn't know that. <laughs> but it was, you know, that was a lot. And uh, so the nonprofit decided to have me help them on their mission and focusing on uh, writing a script and and writing curriculum so that we could train it and what happened is it was modified so significantly from rtm as i worked with these individuals we started modifying and making changes it became um pretty cool and uh we worked with a bunch of people and 
I think I did that for about a year and a half. And then uh, I opened my own private practice. Um, I'm licensed in five states. I have therapists in nine different states because we're just trying to get the challenges with trauma. Once you disconnect the negative emotions from the events, that's great. But now what? What about the wife? What about the kids? How do they then react to that individual? There was a Boulder Crest. I don't know what company Boulder Crest is, but there was a Boulder Crest commercial that I saw and it was extremely powerful. And it was the SEAL who's carrying the radio on his shoulder and all of his weapons and full body gear. And he's walking in the living room and he's swimming in the swimming pool with all of his gear on, helmet and all. And then they show him going into this facility and there's a police officer in full gear. There's, you know, a fireman in full gear, right? And, and as they walk in, you see them take the helmet off. You see them take the jacket off. You see them. And I thought it was a pretty profound commercial. I mean, not so much for that company because I don't know who they are. But at the end of the day, it very much encapsulates the people that I work with because I see them as they walk in, especially the Navy SEALs, you know, the special ops guys, the guys with operator syndrome. You know, I've worked with um, Green Berets, Rangers, you know, people, the best of the best, the airborne, a lot of people who fought, you know, like the, there was one individual that fought in Kosovo and he uh, he had some pretty extreme stories. But at the end of the day, you got to leave the luggage. You got to take that uniform off and they can't without the assistance of some of these protocols. Mm -hmm. And uh, I worked with one guy and he'll be on your show too, where he was shot in the neck at point blank range. Wow. That's, yeah, I can't imagine stuff. what it'd be like to relive that. Mm -hmm. So let's talk real quick about, um, you know, you've, you we talked about little TRP therapy and how uh, that um, and essentially at, at a hundred thousand foot level kind of detaches the emotion from the trauma. And uh, because of the different modalities that you've learned and witnessed, um, you created something called, well, you've helped create something called um, TRIP, uh, which is trauma recovery intervention protocol. And uh, I was just wondering, how does this differ from any other modalities that are out there? Well, I developed it based on uh, a myriad of things. So it has cognitive behavioral therapy. It has a little bit of hypnosis. It's very solution focused. So it's directive. I don't have to involve the individual. I learned that a lot of the challenges came from the feedback from the client. So they are in a traumatized state and it's very challenging for them to give me the input I need in order to run them through some of these other protocols. You need a lot more involvement than they're actually capable of giving you. However, if you give it a step-by-step, line-by-line, do this, do that, do this, do that, do this, do that, it goes a lot smoother, a lot faster. I think that the trauma recovery intervention protocol that I developed is seven minutes hmm. total, start to finish. Wow. But at the end of the day, my goal is not to eliminate PTSD because that is a complicated thing. My goal is to get you to sleep better. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And the other thing I noticed that when you say things like we can cure PTSD, I'm sure you can. And I don't doubt that at all. But my question is, how receptive is the person receiving this information? Hmm. Are you limiting their interest by saying these absolute type language? Because for me, like you need more than one thing. That's how I look at it. And that's why I I developed this from a myriad of therapeutic modalities. It's got reality therapy, CBT, uh, solution-focused, hypnosis, and a little bit of NLP, not a whole lot. But I I modified it based on the individuals I've been working with. And in the past year and a half, I think I've worked with about 1,700 people. And there are a lot of those that were veterans and emergency responders. And I've been pretty blessed to get the referral sources that I have because I want to help these people. I'm working with a Marine now who his wife needs more therapy than he does for the simple fact as she is at the receiving end of that. And I think we forget, you know, everybody worries about the combat veteran, but how has that combat veteran been treating his spouse, his children, how traumatized are they? What quality of life does it look like for them? Mm-hmm. So that's what I've been focusing on is making sure that it's all inclusive. And I've I've met some pretty amazing people on the way, and you'll learn from them um, the, throughout their stories, is they'll be able to share a lot with you about how I refer to them, you know, even I don't think therapy is an end-all, be-all. I think it helps out a lot. I think it's very beneficial if you use the tools. So, yeah, I mean, and I had the the pleasure of being able to to meet up with you and um, and Dr. Deturi, who was going to be on the show here um, in a couple of weeks um, at uh, one of the Take of Fishing events down in Florida a couple of years ago. And he has an amazing story and we'll share his story for his podcast. But uh, that being said, I know you've partnered with him and that uh, you guys are doing some things together. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. So he got T-boned and he had a traumatic brain injury. Now, keep in mind, this guy is a Navy diver, like SOCOM, Navy commander, superstar, right? One of the elite, the best of the best. He happens to look like Sammy Hagar, but he is not Sammy Hagar. <laughs> and he will be like, I'm younger, right? So he gets a little upset about that, but it's pretty funny. <laughs> but he, uh, he you know, after he was T-boned, he started kind of going through, he threw everything but the kitchen sink at what he was got going on. So he called me and he said, I got a TBI. My brain is fried. Uh, if you fix me, I'll hire you. I'm like, all right, you know, I'm never going to turn down a job, right? So I worked with him twice and alleviated it because he was constantly crying, like just over emotional, like he could not control anything. Nothing was regulated. So I think I did two sessions with him and he was, you know, right as rain and he did ice bath and he did EEG, neurofeedback. He did hyperbaric because he owns a hyperbaric facility so he was in that a couple times a day. He did massage therapy. He did set therapy. He did physical therapy. Like this man threw everything at his traumatic brain injury trying to heal it because the doctors weren't. You know, it's like, oh, well, this is as far as we can take you. And he's like, I don't understand that. 
You know, I want to be healed. I'll do anything you recommend. So people started throwing stuff, do an ice bath, do this, do that, right? So what he did is he's like, well, let's get an NFL player and let's get a veteran. And I'm like, okay, what are we going to do with them? And we did a brainstorming. Um, we did a brain, like a brainstorm. We call, we call it the brain room, right? So he has a conference center and he has windows that you actually can write on, dry erase. Mm-hmm. And he just scribbles, you know, because he's brilliant. He's got a PhD in biomedical engineering and he teaches medical doctors. It's like the, the guy is just phenomenal human being. And so we did this whole brain thing and we're like, okay, well, let's set this up. Let's organize, you know, I'm the streamline, I streamline and organize everything. That's what my doctorate's in. So I have to make everything efficient. Otherwise it doesn't make sense to me. It's probably why my protocol is seven minutes long is because that's what makes sense to me. Right. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants instant gratification. So for me, uh, working within this environment with all these brilliant people, we kind of put this stuff together and he's like, okay, so we're going to have a 28 day program. They're going to do hyperbaric twice a day. They're going to do physical therapy, massage therapy. We're going to do trip. We're going to do cognitive behavioral because then once you start healing the traumatic brain injury, you have to learn how to function with other human beings. Mm -hmm. So that's where the CBT comes into play. So I can disconnect the negative emotions and then I do the psychological evaluations two weeks before they come in and then two weeks after. So they're from nine to three, Monday through Friday. And Larry Roberts, actually, you're going to have him on your show too. He was the veteran. He was the Army veteran that we put through the 28-day program. He was the first. He went in with the NFL's superstar, Michael Clayton. And what's interesting is we're getting physical, like real world results so michael's his neurofeedback was 99.67 percent indicator that he had a traumatic brain injury and then two weeks post this program so six weeks later or eight weeks eight weeks later his traumatic brain injury indicator was 1.67 wow we legit healed this man's traumatic brain injury that's crazy and larry will tell you Larry, he screams to the rooftops that we saved his life. So it improves your nutrition. It's a whole person wellness program. And when I mean whole person, you have nine experts in their field that do this. And like, so roughly to do the whole person wellness program, it runs about 20,000, but that's also, I mean, you're paying for equipment, you're paying for all these physicians times, you know, and these people are experts in their field. Like the physical therapist is just, she's on a whole nother level. I've been to her for my back and she does, she works wonders. The massage therapist that does the set therapy, it's basically massaging underneath the occipital lobe, which is like up underneath the bottom of your skull. And it just alleviates all kinds of stress. But these people are exceptional and I'm just, I'm so excited, but he's got some pretty cool things. He's going underwater for like four months. (laughs) So yeah, he's going to break the world record. Cause that's what Joe does. So that's, yeah, it's going to be an exceptional episode. I assure you. It sounds like it. 
Well, again, Just make sure he sends you a book. Make sure he sends you the signed copy of his book. I absolutely will. I absolutely will. So, again, oh, also, that's yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> so many things going on. So I do um, the trauma recovery intervention protocol for veterans and emergency responders. If you want to set up an appointment with me, you go to libertyove.com. They'll also be on the show and they can tell you all about how they are all inclusive. They help sponsor veterans to get the help they need as well as, you know, pay for trip and they pay for uh, individuals to be trained in trip, which is pretty cool. Um, Dr. Detori's program is the Undersea Oxygen Clinic in Tampa, Florida. That's another good one. So let me ask you this. I think you kind of answered some of my questions, but I just wanted to find out regarding, um, you know, the treatment that you're currently offering as far as uh, trip therapy, seven minutes and, and you, you feel better, you know, after you go to sleep and go through REM sleep. Um, is that currently being offered through the VA hospital? Um, and and if not, uh, you know, to your knowledge, does any private insurance cover any of these treatments? So the challenge with the VA is they are very regulated with regard to new treatment. You have to have 15 years post-clinical research prior to them even entertaining looking at it. So EMDR has been out for a really long time, and they're just barely now implementing that in the vet clinics. <clears throat> but you also have an eight-week, you know, waiting period to go see a therapist. Uh, so the answer is yes to the insurance. Now, the individuals who are providing services is very limited. But you can bill it under a brain-based intervention if you take the training, get your certification, and start implementing the service to help those individuals in your area. So if you're credentialed with insurance companies, yes, hypnosis, NLP, all of those, as long as you're certified in those programs, you can receive reimbursement from the insurance companies in your state. Whichever state you're licensed in, yes. Got it. So, uh, so there is there is hope out there as far as uh, people being able to get in touch with you and and doing a, a session of of trip therapy. Absolutely. Great. Well, in closing, I, I want to say thank you again for your time. I know we've taken up over an hour of your time. Uh, it's been busy. Um, I just want to ask uh, one question. What would you say to a veteran or their family, uh, you know, who's listening to this show and struggling with current, you know, currently struggling with post-traumatic stress? What do you want to leave them with? I would say reach out, get help. There's no shame. There's no, no one is going to think badly of you, but have the conversation. Hiding and avoiding the, the conversation um, not paying attention to the signs of suicidal ideation is very damaging. People start to get rid of their uh, property. They start to disconnect from everyone. They start to isolate. Those are all big red flags, as we call them. But having the conversation, are you thinking about committing suicide? That's the thing that a lot of people don't understand, too, is mandated reporting. They automatically think they're going to be, you know, checked into an ER and be assigned a bed in the mental ward 
if they mention the fact that they're thinking about suicide. That's not necessarily how mandated reporting works. The mandated reporting comes when I have a plan at five o'clock tonight, I'm going to take my gun, right? Mm -hmm. So that is the plan and that is where it gets dangerous. And that is what we try to avoid. But I think we don't have this conversation enough. I think we tell everybody to reach out, but nobody really knows how to reach out. Nobody really understands to say, hey, I'm struggling. Mm -hmm. Like, I think life is better if I'm not here. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's talk about that. Well, and not only... You know, so I'm very much, yeah. I'm very much in your face. I'm almost a little combative about it because I want them to tell me everything. You know, I call myself a solution-focused direct trauma therapist for the simple fact is I'm not going to, I'm not going to pussyfoot around. I'm not going to be, you know, oh, it's okay. It's not okay. It's not okay. You should not be feeling the things that you're feeling. I validate that you do feel the way you feel, mm -hmm. but how you're feeling, you don't have to. There are help. There's help. Mm-hmm. And, and that goes for not only the veteran themselves, but also the family members of the veteran and the children of these veterans. So uh, whether it's a spouse or a loved one, um, you know, PTS, uh, it's been proven that it, it does transfer down into the family. And so we talked about that a little bit today, but um, it's, it's important to understand that, um, you know, the veterans, we definitely got to make sure that we're, we're watching them, taking care of them, checking up on them. Um, uh, I don't, you know, daily, weekly, monthly basis, right? Especially the ones that we know are struggling, but also make sure we look closely at their family members. Buddy check, sudden alarm, you know? What's so cool about technology today, it reminds you to do absolutely everything. I got one that tells me to take out the trash every Thursday at eight o'clock, like it's on there forever. So why can't we do a buddy check? Check on James, check on this guy, check on this lady. You know, and I think uh, the big thing is, is I'm, I push very hard for female veterans for the simple fact as I am one. And I, I didn't feel recognized for such a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And when I met you, I mean, I felt like I wrote the red carpet was rolled out for me. And I had never had that experience before being a veteran. And even though, you know, sometimes you're acknowledged for your service, but there's one thing I got from a nonprofit owner. Basically, when people thank me for their service, I say you're worth it because you are, mm -hmm. you know, at the end of the day, I don't, I remember going home from sessions with the human traffic survivors. And I remember driving over this really high bridge, wanting to drive over it. And I think the only thing that stopped me at those dark times was the fact I didn't know if I'd be super, super injured like Kevin Hines was when he jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge or that I would have died. So for me, that wasn't a risk I was willing to take. And I think that's the only thing that uh, got me to be able to keep moving forward. Well, I think you so I think we all suffer. Yeah, I think you touched upon a really good point here, and that is, um, you know, just I don't care if you were uh, at the tip of the spear in combat or if you served during, you know, peacetime. Um, we're all you are all veterans, and you all deserve to be recognized and acknowledged. Mm -hmm. And uh, that goes for men, women, um, all races. It doesn't matter. Um, you know, like you said, I know women uh, when 
unfortunately, we have a stigma where we think of of veterans and we think of males, right? Uh, but that being said, yes. You know, not many people realize that there were female fighter pilots in World War II. And so that just goes to show you how far back women have been defending our freedom alongside men. And so therefore, it's important to make sure that we recognize, um, you know, the sacrifices and trials and tribulations that the women as, you know, in addition to the men have faced. And and again, I can't say thank you enough for, for your service. And I encourage every American out there uh, to, Anytime you see a veteran, I don't care if it's at a gas station, a bank, a grocery store, um, you know, reach out your hand, say thank you for your service. It goes a long way. Thank you. I appreciate that sentiment. I just, you know, it's it's not necessarily about what did I, we do for the, you know, I think a lot of people don't understand that we put on a uniform to serve a higher purpose than ourselves. And knowing full well what I endured pre, post, during my military service, I think knowing that firsthand has definitely catapulted me into the mission I'm on right now. And at the end of the day, I want everybody just to sleep a little better, to feel better about themselves. That's one of the reasons I'm writing a book right now. Uh, It's called Change Your Language, Change Your Life. And the first sentence in it is, why am I so mean to me? Because I think we have a tendency to internalize and so many things trigger us. We can send a text message and somebody is like, what do you mean? And they're very combative and reactive to it. And the conversation goes so south so quickly that we forget. We don't take that extra second to go, he may not have meant that. But I'm reacting like he did, and I'm assuming. So part of my book is about changing that language and changing that narrative within yourself so that you can be kinder to others. Because we do come at each other's throat all the time. You see it on social media. You see it in the news. I can't tell you how many shows I've seen lately where people are climbing on counters and throwing things at workers and just being so combative. It just doesn't, it's complete chaos and it just isn't required. Oh, you're absolutely right. And um, again, uh, we've all endured trauma. Um, I definitely believe that you endured more than uh, at least me, but many others. But um, again, you're living proof that that there is help, there is hope, there is healing out there. And uh, again, you've dedicated your life to um, making sure that you research that and, and pay it forward. So for that, um, again, I can't say thank you enough. And uh, before we go, is there any parting words that you'd like to leave the listeners with? Well, I think with regard to trauma that, you know, I, I have endured a significant amount, if you were to gauge it and compare it to anybody else's. I'm very blessed and honored and very lucky that I had people looking out for me who wanted to help me heal. And I've been on this amazing roller coaster and this amazing journey with all different people from all different walks of life who were just there to help, you know. And uh, I would say that if if you're struggling with sleep, if you're struggling with intrusive thoughts, if you're struggling with emotional flashbacks, if you're struggling with hypervigilance, ADHD, emotional regulation, any of that reach out. I have a private practice. It's called Semper Modis, S-E-M-P-E-R-M-O-T-I-S-L-L-C. 
and uh, you can go right to the website. You can schedule an appointment there. If you're a veteran or emergency responder that's struggling with trauma specifically, you could go to libertyove.com. And then if you're interested in the whole person wellness and to get the overall, if you have a traumatic brain injury or you think you do, go to the underwateroxygenclinic.com and you can coordinate from there to get you the help you need. But just remember, you don't have to suffer ever. Absolutely. Amen to that. Well, again, thank you for sharing your story with us. Um, I wish we had hours and hours to talk because I know that uh, you're a wealth <laughs> of information. But uh, again, post-traumatic stress is definitely the thing that we're going to focus on on this podcast. Uh, we know it's real, uh, but we also know that there are ways of healing out there. Um, I call it the silent killer because, you know, many of us look at uh, our, our our heroes, our veterans that come back with the physical wounds, um, but many of them don't realize that it's the the ones that come back with the mental wounds that you can't see. Um, that I call it the silent killer or the the prison sentence, right? It's something that they have to endure um, every day of their life, and so. Uh, well, the support and the acknowledgement is lacking, where it's just suck it up and drive on. Like we cannot do that anymore. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's good to know now that there's organizations like the ones we've talked about today that are providing relief for uh, PTS, and I, I call it PTS, not PTSD, because I don't know that there's necessarily a disorder associated with it, but that's for another show. But um, I just want to make sure that again our listeners understand that uh, there is help out there. Um, contact you know Operation Healing Heroes or or any of the, the different organizations that Dr. Royster just mentioned. And, uh, you know, make sure that you, you find the help because it is out there. Well, uh, if you'd like more information about today's podcast, please visit our website at operationhealingheroes.org. Dr. Royster, for your time today, I'd like to send you an Operation Healing Heroes hoodie. I, I hope that you'll wear it proudly. Um, if you're interested in sporting our swag, uh, make sure you check out our website, visit our store, operationhealingheroes.org, and uh, you can support not only the podcast, but the TV show. Uh, and again, we certainly appreciate you coming on the show today. Thanks so much. And uh, again, next week, we'll be featuring another U.S. military veteran. We'll be documenting their story. Uh, make sure you join in. And uh, we're going to leave you with another uh, message from our nonprofit sponsor, Take a Vet Fishing. This week's Veterans Resource Nonprofit of the Week is Take a Vet Fishing. We provide one day group fishing outings to veterans struggling with post traumatic stress. The great outdoors has a natural healing power. Come experience the camaraderie and healing that one day on the water can provide. If you're a veteran living in or willing to travel to Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, or Florida, you can sign up free of charge to our One Day of Giving Back events. Visit www.takeavetfishing.org for more information.